0: All righty, grab a seat. We're going to get to God's Word at this time. If you would, as you grab your seat, grab your Bibles. And we're going to be, as we continue our series in the life and times of Abraham, we're going to uh, continue on with our study of this portion of Genesis, uh, focusing on this man, Abraham, and we'll be in Genesis Chapter 17 this morning, we're going to read the first 16 verses, so bear with me and read along with me to follow your own Bible as I read through this fairly lengthy passage this morning. Genesis chapter 17, hear God's word. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. That I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become many nations, become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. This sends the reading of God's holy, infallible, and sometimes very awkward words. So can you handle it? If we can shelve our 13-year-old boys that live inside of all of us for today and get through a passage that uses the word circumcision some double digits uh, in times... Alright, we come to a challenging passage for me uh, and for many of us. Uh, there's many things to look at here. There's a, it's a lengthy passage. In fact, I would have liked to have looked at the entirety of the chapter, but felt there was too many things to get to this morning to get to everything in this chapter. And even so, we will have to focus on primarily verses 9 to 14, to focus on what I think is the real cream of the crop from this passage. But to give you some, an outline and a skeleton to follow along with me this morning, I've got three points we will do the first two points in probably six minutes and then spend the rest of our time on the final third point for our time this morning. So let's jump right in because I got a lot to get to. And so here's your first point and here's what we see in verses one through eight. No hubbub to get into it. It says this, where it's out, God comes to Abram and he says, I am God Almighty. You may have remembered an Amy Grant song that went like this, El Shaddai, El Shaddai. If you weren't part of the Christian community back then, consider yourself blessed. But he comes to Abram once again. He says, I am God the Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And what he continues to do over the next six to seven verses is, he, as he has done in chapters 12, 13, and 15, he now reiterates, reaffirms, and then expands upon the covenant that God has made with his son Abraham. God is all over the place in these first 8 verses. We see God using the word I on 8 different occasions. And what we see here is that what is consistent with the way he has dealt with Abraham is God's covenant with Abraham is unilateral. Abraham doesn't come to the table with with, with bargaining chips. This is God Almighty El Shaddai coming and saying, "Oh yeah, this is my covenant with you, and this is how it's going to work." God gives it to us. But then we also see, as we've seen, as I just mentioned, we see God restating and expanding his promises. He talks about the offspring that Abraham will have. And now it's not simply one nation, but what do we see? There's going to be many nations and kings that are going to come from Abraham. He talks about the land of Canaan. And then he makes this wonderful high point in which he says, I will be the God of your people. This is a two-way street. We are possessed and owned by God. He is our God. We are, he owns us. We are his people in the same way. We also possess him in a way. He is our God. We hold on to him. There is a relationship here that God is promising to Abraham that he is going to give not only to Abraham, but also to Abraham's descendants in an everlasting manner. Now, what I want you to see, just sort of a quick side note here, because it's going to come into play later on. But what we see in the life of Abraham, and I pointed this out a couple weeks ago, is that as God comes and keeps reaffirming his promises, he doesn't simply reaffirm them. He continues to unfold more of them. It is the same covenant... But what we see, the covenant in chapter 12, verse 1, where God calls Abraham, that is the covenant in seed form. And what has happened in chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 15, and now in chapter 17, we see the the covenant between God and Abraham gradually unfolding. More and more of it is being revealed. But not only does God come and give Abraham wonderful promises and reiterate his promises and continue to unfold how the covenant is going to work between them, but he also comes and does one really wonderful thing for Abraham. He renames him. There's a sermon I had from the, from the book of Mark where, our God, where Jesus comes and he renames some of his disciples. And I mentioned uh, and during that sermon how important that is, the fact that God comes to us and not, he gives us a new name, which means we have a new identity, a new sense of purpose. And what is does he name Abraham? Well, Abraham, Abraham has gone his whole life by the name Abram. This is a man who has no children, and yet you know what his name means? Abram literally means Big Daddy. Big Daddy. So here's Abraham traveling all over Mesopotamia and various parts of the desert and entertaining various travelers. that would be coming through his, fa- his, his camp, and they would see him. They'd say, oh, great, what's your name? Oh, Abram. Oh, where are all your children? And Abram goes, I don't have any. Despite the fact that his God has promised him to make him into a great nation, to give him many children, Abram doesn't have any. But we see here that God doubles down in the way he renames Abraham, Because not only does he take his name Big Daddy, what he does is he takes that and adds a little juxtaposition, a little, I don't know what you would call it, a little addition to his name in such a way that his name now means the father of many nations. So now he's not only going to be Abram, the father of the big daddy, the man who has a big family, but now he's going to be the father of many nations. And it's not just him, it's also Sarah who's included in this covenant as well. This here is an expansion of what God has promised to Abraham. And we here, see here in a nutshell, what, it, in, some many, in some ways, what it means to be a Christian. It means to be Christ is that God gets to name you, that you are his, that you're possessed by him. To be joined to him means you take his name and the name that he declares you to have. You're no longer known by your past addictions, your past identities, but you're known by your identity with him. That's what's going on with Abraham. So we see the promises of the covenant first and foremost. But as great as those promises are... And we see God continue to unfold the totality of his covenant with us. And we saw all throughout how it's been unilateral. We saw in Genesis 15 how God's going to take care of all the conditions of the covenant. We still see within the covenant here in chapter 17 that Abraham has responsibilities within the covenant. He has things that God comes and says, Abraham, you have to live this way. And we see three mentioned in this passage. So, here's you, so the first point is the promises of the covenant, and the second point is this, the stipulations of the covenant. That God comes and says, here's some requirements I have of you as a covenant mentor, men, member in this relationship and in this partnership. And verse 1 is where we see these. First, he says, walk before God. Now, wherever we see that word walk, almost everywhere in the scriptures, what that means is live. The entirety of your life should be lived out before God. To live before God means you are consciously aware of God's presence of God's presence, and that he is the audience, the main and singular audience of your life. But it goes beyond that. When God would call in Exodus and in various places, when Israel was wandering through the desert, when he would say, come before me, that was most often when he was coming to give them the law. God's about to call Abraham to be blameless, And what God gives is we see the continuation of the unfolding of God's covenant with Abraham now unfolded for the people of Israel in the desert through Moses when God gives them the law. God says, be blameless. And what do we see in the law is a grand articulation of what it looks like to be blameless. And so God says to the people of Israel, come before me. Stand before me. So to walk before God means you come into the God as as his, he is your main audience, but not only that, but he is your authority. And when you stand before God, when you walk before Him, He's the one who watches out for you. He is the main audience in your life, but He's also the one who has the main authority in your life. He is the King speaking to His subjects and the Father speaking to His children. That's what's going on here when He says, Walk before God, Abraham. And then He tacks on to that. The second stipulation is, Be blameless. Walk before God and be blameless, it says in verse 1. This is that Abraham was to be set apart. This is a call to holiness. Literally the word could be called can be calling Abraham to perfection. Abraham, be perfect. He is to be righteous. And this is a consistent call throughout the scriptures if you know the scriptures at all. In first Peter chapter one, Peter calls us to the same thing, in which he says, Be holy as the Lord is holy. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy, Peter says. This is the call for all Christians. Now, this call you have to understand, so you're not crushed by it, is this call to perfection for Abraham is after the gospel given in Genesis 15. What does God say in Genesis 15 when he cuts the covenant with Abraham? He says, Abraham, I'm going to walk through these cut pieces, and if I don't keep my end of the bargain may what happens to these pieces happen to me. But God is the only one who walks through the pieces. And so what he's saying there is not only is he going to keep his end of the bargain, but if Abraham breaks his end of the deal, that God's going to pay for... Abraham sins as well. That's the gospel. That's the grace that's here. And it's in light of chapter 15 that God now calls Abraham to live out of that grace. The expectation is not that we can be perfect. We don't believe in perfectionism. We don't believe the scriptures teach that. But we do believe that the scriptures call us to seek perfection. To seek holiness. What does Paul say? He says, I strive. I don't believe I have taken hold of it, but I press on to take hold of the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Why has God made us his bride, it says in Ephesians 5? To present us pure and spotless without blemish, that is perfect and holy in God's sight. You don't do this to get into the covenant. You don't live perfectly to get into the relationship with God, but because God has brought you into relationship with Him, He has said, "I'm going to take care of all the conditions. We then live out of that grace, the joyous grace of seeking to pursuing holiness in our life and righteousness in all the various ways that we live. So there are two stipulations, but there's a third, and that leads us to the third point. Let me just rewind just a little bit and talk about the promises of God and use a particular picture of what's been going on between God and Abraham. And I want to use the picture of a wedding. What we have in Genesis 12 and chapter 13 is God comes to Abraham and he makes promises, covenant promises. And the best place where we see covenants in our culture today is at weddings when two people promise to live a certain way with one one another, to dedicate their lives to one another, to minister to one another for the rest of their lives. But the promise isn't, All there is. In Genesis 15, what else does God give? He gives the promise, and then just like married couples, after the ceremony, what do they go do? They go sign a marriage license. And what God has done in Genesis 15 by cutting a covenant is he has signed a covenant license with Abraham that is signed in God's own blood. It's signed in God's own blood. But just like a marriage, we see two people who promise Thomas to live with each other in a certain way, They then sign their life away legally to one another, but then also what do they give one another? They give one another a sign of those promises, a sign and seal of their love for one another, of their commitment to one another in a wedding ring. That's what they give one another. And that's what we come to in point three today, where we'll spend the rest of our time, and that is the sign of the covenant. God tells Abraham he is to be circumcised as the sign of the covenant between God and Abraham. Abraham and all of Abraham's descendants. So let me ask ask four questions this morning to work through the sign of the covenant to the meat of this text. First, we're going to ask this question. Point A is this. Who gives the, the sign? Who gives the sign? Does Abraham come up with this? No, no one would come up with this idea. This is a terrible idea, right? Abraham doesn't give the sign. What we see is the God who is able to name us is also the God who then marks us. He labels us. He calls us his own. The sign of the covenant is something that is primarily an action on God's part and involves a submissive, a passive action on our part to take it. This is not an easy sign to take for Abraham, but it is actively God giving the sign. This is God coming to Abraham and said, I'm going to mark you in this way. So imagine a marriage ceremony. It's not that Abraham marks himself. Imagine a marriage ceremony if the bride were to snatch the ring out of the groom's hand and put it on her own finger. That's not what she does, is it? No, it's the the groom who shows up. He brings the ring. He he presents the ring, and he places the ring on on the bride's finger. This is what God does for Abraham. It's his idea. He brings the sign to Abraham, and he is the one who marks Abraham so that's the one who gives it this is God's idea first and foremost and therefore it is we must follow the way God has instituted and the pattern with which God has given us this sign we come to the second question and the enormous pink elephant in the room second who receives the sign of the covenant who is it I want to hear you say it out loud Abraham and who else His descendants, and actually not even so much his descendants, his entire household. I mean, it goes into great detail who is supposed to receive the sign of circumcision, the sign of the covenant. The sons, the servants, all the males, whether they started out in your house, whether they were born in your house, if they come into your household, they are to receive the sign of the covenant. And here we get down to brass tacks. It is my position, personally, personally, it is the position of our leaders of this church, and it is the position of this church confessionally, is that the sign of the covenant, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is that sign to be given to believing parents, men of faith, women of faith, and to their children. The pattern is set in Genesis 17. You may have heard of this thing called infant baptism. My son, Andrew, was baptized a couple weeks ago in front of you as an infant. This is not so much just an issue of infant baptism as it's been described. This is an issue of household baptism. So let me ask this question. Why should we talk about this at all? This is a rather divisive issue. In fact, I would guess that probably 30 to 40% of you are in disagreement with me on this issue. Some of my closest friends that I love dearly disagree with me on this issue. This is not an issue necessarily that we should divide over. We can love one another through this. We can be gracious with one another even as we hold our various positions. So why, do I, why should I talk about this? Isn't this just going to cause problems in our church? Well, first, I think we've got to talk about this because you are in a Presbyterian church. And it is in our doctrine that we are to baptize children, the children of believers. And I want you to understand that position. If you're going to attend this church, whether you're going to agree with us or not, we don't require you to hold this position to be a member in this church. We're not saying that you absolutely have to believe every, everything that we believe in, every jot and tittle. No, you don't have to hold this position, but it is important for you to understand it because you don't want to be ignorant. It is, it is amazing to me what people believe about the Presbyterian position. Generally, I think most Presbyterians, in fact, are utterly ignorant as to how, why we hold this position. It is not that we believe in baptismal regeneration. We don't believe that we're saving children. We don't think this is just some quaint little idea that we've held out on from the Catholic Church, but we believe this is biblical. It's from the Bible, and so I want to show you from the Bible why we're not cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, but actually why I think we're right. Second, in Exodus 4... Moses is hanging out with his wife Zipporah, and they're heading back to Egypt to go deliver the people of Israel, and suddenly everything appears to get derailed because God shows up and tells Zipporah, I'm gonna kill Moses. You know why? Because Moses had not circumcised his sons. We may look at this and say, Oh, this is a very small issue. We don't want to divide over this, but let me tell you, I would rather divide with you than divide with God. And this is how God views this particular sacrament then I think we should take it fairly seriously ourselves. That brings me to the third thing. And even more importantly is, I want your joy. When you obey God to the very last end and seek to know His truth so that you obey Him in every area of life, there's greater joy for you. And I want joy not only for you who are parents, but I want joy for your kids. And I believe that giving our children the sign of, of the covenant of baptizing our babies will give us joy. Will give us joy. And so that's why I want to talk about this, that this morning. A quick word, one more aside before we jump into my reasons for why I give my defense for infant baptism. It's a quick word about, about covenant progression. You're like, what? I'm getting super nerdy here this morning, people. I'm so sorry. Yeah, by the way, if you're a visitor, this is the most Presbyterian sermon I have ever preached in my life, I have been here for two and a half years. I've not addressed this issue, I don't think, at all. This is not our creed. Our creed is Christ. He is the one who saves us. This is not the thing that we slap on our foreheads and is our, the biggest deal, but I do think we need to address it. And where the divide is so often, this is the continuity to discontinuity as you move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. What we have in the New Testament where we see that the sign goes from circumcision to baptism, I'm about to talk about that in just a minute. What we see there is not a break from what was happening in the Old Testament, but a continual unfolding of what has already been going on in the Bible. I've already shown you this in Genesis in Abraham's life. What has been happening between Genesis 12 and Genesis 17? It is the same covenant, and yet with every chapter, we get new nuance, more nuances. It becomes expanded and reaffirmed, and we find out more and more and more. Throughout the New Testament, here's what we hear Paul and John, the very New Testament writers, saying. God has revealed himself. The New Testament is about new revelation, not about completely radically different revelation. God manifests himself over a period of time and gradually over the course of the scriptures. Did you know that the idea of Old Testament New Testament is a man-made thing if your bible didn't have that divide between malachi and matthew how would you view this the bible is one story where the god of the universe the god has created heavens and earth is unfold in an unfolding and mysterious way is revealing himself it is not multiple stories that are broken apart and so that's important for you to understand that's my position that's how we get to where we are today in regards to infant baptism so let me give you some defenses and i think they're good I think you should hold to these. The first reason is why why we hold to infant baptism here at King's Chapel and why do I do personally is this. And this is the most foundational and theologically robust of them and the most difficult to understand though. And that's circumcision, the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant with Abraham, what we talked about in Genesis 17 today. finds its fulfillment and replacement in the sign of the new covenant with water baptism. To put it very plainly, baptism has replaced circumcision in the new covenant sign between God's, the God's covenant between himself and his people. In the New Testament, what we see is we see some new language going on about the spirit thing and cleansing, but it is not brand new language. We see echoes of it in the Old Testament. And the reason why we begin to see some new language is because there's some new revelation going on in the New Testament. Jesus has shown up. It's not that it's completely different. But more has been revealed, and therefore well, more is meant by the sign. A new sign is given to encompass all that is meant by, this new, by this, what has newly been revealed. But what we see, and what I want you to see today, is that circumcision and baptism essentially mean the same thing. Circumcision in its meaning and significance is what baptism is in seed form. Just like we see the seed form of God's covenant with Abraham in chapter 12, and it continues to be developed, what we see in circumcision, what it signifies, and what it means, we see it in more hazy, gray form than what it, how it's clarified in the New Testament. But they mean the same thing. And I want to show you three ways in which the two, baptism and circumcision, correlate with one another. In which they mean the same thing. And the first correlation is this. By the way, this is on the back of your, your discussion guide. I have this laid out in detail so that you don't have to take as many notes and you can kind of pay attention. I'm sorry, I should have mentioned that before. So three correlations between circumcision and baptism. The first is this, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is a, there's a correlation between circumcision of the heart and baptism of the Holy Spirit, that they're the same thing. Water baptism represents and signifies the internal cleansing away of sin by God's Spirit. There is no disagreement between Baptists and Presbyterians on this issue. The cleansing away is the cleansing away of God, of sin by God's Spirit. But what we see in the New Testament, in Colossians 2 verse 11, we see a clear link between spiritual circumcision and spiritual baptism is going on. That just as spiritual circumcision signifies the cutting away of our sin, so baptism is signifies the cleansing away of our sin. Let me read Colossians 2:11 and 12 for you. In him Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Therefore it's not talking about physical circumcision here. This is spiritual circumcision. What's going on in the heart? A circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. What we see here is that spiritual baptism, the same thing that's going on there, is what's going on with spiritual circumcision. The same language is used in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy ten sixteen. Circumcision is not merely physical in the Old Testament. It begins with the heart. 10 16 of Deuteronomy Circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Jeremiah 4 4, the first part of it. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your hearts. And then, what does a circumcised heart produce in a life? Deuteronomy 30. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. Both, the heart of your descendants, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, so that you may live. They mean the same thing. Spiritual circumcision produces a cleansing of the soul, just as spiritual baptism by God's Holy Spirit means we have a cleansed soul. Now, let me ask you this Was it possible to be circumcised? spiritually and not physically? Yes, Noah wasn't circumcised. Was it possible to be be physically circumcised and not spiritually circumcised? Yes, there were many Israelites who were physically circumcised, but they rejected the covenant of God. They did not obey his covenant promises and therefore they got covenant cursing instead. There's always been citizens of Israel who've done this. In the same way, there's many people who are baptized, whether as babies or as adults, who reject the covenant as well. They eventually walk away and they've proved that their hearts have not been washed or their hearts have been circumcised in the language of the Old Testament. It's just the same as baptism. What counts the most is not the outward sign, but it's what's going on within, in both the Old and the New Testament. Paul says this in Romans two twenty-eight and 29, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Talking about spiritual Israelites here. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by who? By the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, it's the exact same thing. I don't know how it can be more plain. We are regenerated and we are cleansed and our sin is cut away by who? The Spirit of God. And who circumcises our hearts? The Spirit of God. We have to get over the fact this may maybe a little bit different language, but it's pretty clear it's the same person working here in the same place in this area. All right, so the, so the summary of this, my point here is this, and the first correlation, is that circumcision and baptism are both rites, symbols of symbolic cleansing, visibly setting before us the purifying work of the Holy Spirit. It has always meant that from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Second correlation between baptism and circumcision, showing that they mean the same thing. Both baptism and circumcision express connection to the visible community of God's people. This is seen both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. How do you know that someone is part of a church in the New Testament? They get baptized. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And this is the same way for how it happens for in the Old Testament. The sign of the covenant had to be given to you where we consider part of the visible community of God's people, the locus, the center where you visibly see God's people in the Old Testament is the nation of Israel. The locus and the center of where you see God's people in the New Testament is where the church. The beauty what Paul freaks out about in the New Testament is that we have gone from one nation getting God's blessing, where everybody has to come to Israel and becomes an Israelite through circumcision. Suddenly in the New Testament, what do we see? The church is made up of every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. That's what's going on that's so wonderful in the New Testament. But what we see in the Old Testament is this, you had to become part of Israel. But could Gentiles do that? Yes, Exodus 12, verse 48, talking about the Passover. If a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and let him come near to celebrate it, and he should be like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat of it. What's the point? If you don't publicly profess through the covenant sign that you're a part of the people of God, you don't get to take part of the Lord's table. Passover then, Lord's Supper now. All right. That's the second correlation. The third correlation is this. Show that baptism and circumcision mean the same thing. Is that both are administered or given in light of faith. In light of faith. Romans 4.11, and this is, other than Colossians 2, this is the linchpin of our position. Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the unrighteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised. What Romans 4.11 is saying is this, Abraham had faith and he was considered and reckoned before God as righteous. Then he was given the sign of circumcision. Well, you go, isn't that the Baptist position? You have to profess faith. But yes, what go, it's a spiritual, what's going on here is spiritual. It's the same thing that happens with us. We have to profess faith in order to be considered righteous. This is not just that God calls Abraham out because he's a good Israelite. He calls him out because it's a spiritual identity that he has. And yet Hugh still gets the sign of the covenant. Abraham and his physical children. It is all... See, the people who God makes covenants with, it's always been about a spiritual connection, a spiritual covenant. But what, what John Piper, you'll go read John Piper this afternoon. I know you will. You'll go read John Piper. And where he comes after is Romans 4. On this particular point, what he says is that guys like me, what we don't, we don't take seriously enough how great the new covenant is. My pushback is that John Piper doesn't understand how great the old covenant was. That God has always been working by grace through faith alone. The only thing is our faith has grown in our understanding of who that's in. God has revealed himself. It's Yahweh. But now he's revealed himself more fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why we're blessed. More has been revealed to us. But God has always been working through sp- in a spiritual way and not merely a physical way as would be the accusation of those who hold a different viewpoint from mine. Now follow me here. This is really important. If there is a consistency, a correlation that baptism and circumcision mean the same thing going from the Old Testament to the New Testament if that's the pattern, they mean the same thing then the pattern of the Old Testament must also continue to the New Testament. In other words, I'm saying this. That if parents and their children receive the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament, and if the sign has, means the same thing in the New Testament, then parents and their children continue to receive the sign of the covenant in the New Testament. Children are not going to get cut out in the New Testament promises. All right, let's move on to reason number two, and this follows from that. And this is what moved me. And I'll say this in my background. I'm, my dad's a Presbyterian pastor, and I didn't get it. I went to seminary, and I used to tell people the joke was 55 days out of 100. I believed in infant baptism, and 45 out of 100, I didn't. It took me two years of studying in seminary before I actually came to this position. And what got me was this point right here, was the understanding of what would a first-century first century Jew think. You're a first-century Jew on the day of Pentecost. You've lived for 1,400 years with the sign of the covenant being given to you. If you profess faith... You're serving Yahweh. It's given to you and to your children. And you've been looking forward to this Messiah who's going to come. He's going to be the fulfillment of the covenant. It's going to be great. The Messiah comes. You believe in him. Now suddenly my kids are cut out of the covenant? No, the expectation, the assumption of the first century Jew is that my children would absolutely be included in the covenant and they would receive the sign of the covenant Let me give my point the way I give it on the paper. The interpretive assumptions moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament is that children should be included in the covenant and receive the sign of the covenant unless the New Testament clearly states that children are no longer included in the covenant. Unless the New Testament clearly states that children should no longer receive the sign of the covenant. In other words, if circumcision in the Old Testament was administered to a man who professed faith in God and to his children, that's the same thing that should happen in the New Testament. Unless the New Testament, in words, says that is not what should happen. In fact, there is more than simply an assumption here. There is a command that that's what should happen. Genesis 17, verse 12, where we read today. Pick up in verse 12. He says, God says this, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male, for how long? Throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, a everlasting covenant. How long is everlasting? Everlasting. It is always. It is not until Jesus comes, it is Everlasting. The difference is we understand it differently because Jesus comes and says, not all Jews who are only physical are the true sons of Abraham. It is those who are spiritual sons of Abraham. That's where the everlasting comes into play. What I'm saying is not only is it an assumption that the whole household should receive the sign of the covenant, but the Old Testament and the New Testament Jew would have understood it as commanded that they were supposed to give their children the sign of the covenant. God's going to kill Moses. It's commanded. It's a big deal. There's no way an early, a first century Jew on the day of Pentecost would have thought that their children would not have been included in the, in the sign of the covenant. I think this is really important. Because one of the things that you'll hear about our, the Presbyterian position, the one we hold this church, is that our argument is from silence. That is silliness. Only if you disregard the first 39 books of the Bible is that an argument from Silence if you've actually paid attention to what's going on for the first 39 books, then you realize actually the pages are turned and it's the Baptistic view that is an argument from silence. If you're going from the Old Testament to the New Testament where children receive the sign of the covenant, it is, it is required of the person who holds the Baptistic position that children should not receive the sign of the covenant. They have to be the ones to prove it. It is them who has the burden of proof. It is not the Presbyterian that has to prove it from the New Testament. It has already been going on. If there's a change, there has to be clear reason for that change. This brings me to my third point. And this follows from that. Reason three, the New Testament follows the pattern of God always or almost always dealing with whole households and giving whole households the sign of the covenant. How does God work? Does he just simply work with individuals? As an American, you say, oh yeah, absolutely. Individual, individual, individual. My individual liberties. I'm obsessed with me as the individual. No. He's always worked with households. When Noah builds an ark and God says, I'm going to destroy the whole earth, build build an ark, and they're going to go into it. Is it only Noah who goes into it? No, it's his whole family that gets saved. Is everybody in Noah's family ultimately saved and that they're going to heaven? No. Noah gets drunk, Ham makes fun of him, and he kicks him out of the covenant. But the whole family is included in the sign. Abraham, it's the same way. It's the same pattern. This is exactly what we see going on into the New Testament. We see no change in the way God works. He views whole... He views, it's a principle of viewing whole households, not simply individuals. And there's a strong passage in 1 Corinthians 7. Make makes sense of this. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14, it says this. And it shows the way God views households that have a believer in them. The unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. What? All it takes is one parent to love Jesus and the whole rest of the family is considered set apart. It doesn't mean they're perfectly righteous and blameless, but it means they are different from the rest of the world. They're set apart by God. They're considered holy. You know, it's the same way they would talk about temple instruments. When they built a the temple, they would make, they would consider them holy. They would set them apart, sanctify them for the Lord. That's exactly what it means here. Not that everybody in the family is perfectly sinless and morally pure, but they're set apart by God. They've been marked by God as his. And the assumption is that they will continue to be his until they prove it otherwise. This is different, and this is something the Presbyterian gets to hold to. My dad tells a story in a sermon. My, my dad actually was very helpful on this. He gave me terrible jump, but he gave me a good jump shot, and he gave me some good sermons. He gave me some good help. Jump, that makes no sense, does it? He gave me no, no, no ability to get off the ground, if you don't know what I'm talking about. But he tells the story of a, of a Baptist preacher friend of his who said this about his kids. He said that until my kids show evidence of true repentance and faith, I regard them as the children of the devil. If your children are unsaved, that's what Jesus tells the Pharisees. But that does not match up with what we hear in 1 Corinthians 7.14. They are considered holy and set apart. Now that is a different view. Now does that mean my children are not depraved and they're not little sinners? No. I'm, I became a believer. I'm walking with Jesus Many of you became a a professing believer as an adult, and you didn't receive baptism until afterwards, and yet you're still a sinner. You were still depraved at that time. You still have sin in you. The issue is not that they're perfect, but God sees them, has set them apart, and has put his mark upon them. God not only interacts with whole households through the Bible, but he gives His his covenantal sign to whole households. And again here, I'd say the weight of the evidence is for the Presbyterian position and not the Baptist position in the New Testament. Not only, he obviously works with whole households. There's no debate about that in the Old Testament. But he continues this pattern in the New Testament. Three occasions in the New Testament we see whole households baptized. Let's look at them all. The first one, the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. The jailer, there's an earthquake. Paul and Silas get loosed and gets up free with all all the other prisoners. And the jailer's freaking out. And he brings them out and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your, Who? your household. Now, this is before they go home. And they're saying, you will be saved, you and your households. But now you Baptists are quick to point out verse 34 to me. And it says this, he brought them into the house. This is the jailer brought Paul and Silas in the house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Okay, I'll give you that maybe the whole household ended up believing in God and that's why they're baptized. At the very least, what we see here is the principle of God working in whole households. It's consistent. A whole household is saved. But we have another one, another occasion in Acts 16. Lydia. Further on down, earlier in the chapter, verse 13. On the Sabbath day, Paul, this is going to go out. Paul, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began to speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Now, this time, who listens to the sermon? It's a bunch of women. And the one who responded was Lydia. But who was baptized? It says this in verse 15. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urges, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. You no, know we never see any mention of? No one in the household is mentioned to be believing. But everybody in the household is baptized. We have one other note. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 16, Paul says this, I baptized the entire household of Stephanus Three times in the New Testament. Whole households. This is how God has always worked. This is how he continues to work in the New Testament. That he moves through families. You love the family, right? You listen to focus on the family. This is being true to it. Following God's commitment to the family. That he works through families, not simply through individuals. Three-household baptism, the leaning of the Old Testament is towards infant baptism. The leaning towards the, in the New Testament, I think, is also towards infant baptism or whole-household baptism. The fourth is this. I want to be careful. I don't want to misuse this because it's going to come from church history. But the early church evidence, I think, is pretty overwhelming. The church can get it wrong even very early on. But there's a guy named Origen who was known as the first great theologian of the early church and he stated that he was baptized as a baby in accordance with the practice of all churches everywhere this is in 80 180 less than 100 years after the all the apostles have died so it's less than two generations and all churches everywhere do you know of a church that can that they can agree for even 100 years on that on one issue and yet they continue to agree on this issue 180 A.D., he says, All churches everywhere are baptizing infants. Origen was born around then. In his commentary on Romans, he states that the church had received from the apostles the tradition of infant baptism. And it's interesting, over the course of the early first 400 years of the Christian church, we fight about everything. We're trying to figure out our theology. You know what we don't fight about? You never see any mention of us fighting about infant baptism. Why? Because the assumption of everybody who knew the Old Testament was that the sign of the covenant was going to be given not only to the ones who believe, but also to their children. It's 1142. I rest my case. I'd be more than happy to talk to you about this more individually if you're really perturbed by it. But you better give me biblical evidence. And I'm serious. Third question. We're not done, but I want to move us towards unity because we're going to the table together. What does the sign of circumcision signify? And in many ways, then the, the sign of baptism. Two things I want to preach at you, not just teach. And these are sweet truths. What does the sign of circumcision signify? It means this that you come into a new status. What has God just done for Abraham? He's given him a new name, hasn't he? Who gets to name you? Your parents get to name you, right? Why do your parents get to name you? Because your fanny belongs to them. You are theirs, and you are in their family. Therefore, they get to name you. This is the same with God. What is he telling Abraham? By giving him a sign. He's saying this, I put my mark upon you. And that mark means... It's a perpetual sign, a visual reminder that Abraham belongs to God. Brothers and sisters, that is the gospel. That if you've been baptized, you've been set apart, and God has put his mark on you, and he says, you are mine. That's your new status. You're not an engineer. You're not an addict. You're God's. To jump back to the infant baptism real quick. Parents, if you've given your children the sign of of the covenant, this is a sign of belongingness. My wife and I, we cry every time we see an infant baptism. It means my son is not ultimately the son of a father who you would never meet and a mother who couldn't care for him so she had to give him to us. And he is not ultimately my son, but he is the son of the creator God. That is a beautiful thing. And God has set him apart in a way that I can never set him apart. And he has said, that little Andrew Troy Henley is mine. And devil, you will not mess with him. And church, you better defend him. That's what it means to be part of God's family. We see when you come in and you're called a child of God and he puts his name upon you and he puts his mark upon you, you enter into God's family. It's the visible sign that you belong to God's covenant family and that means we protect one another. We make you take a vow every time we baptize a baby. Will you support these parents? Will you support these parents? That child belongs to the Lord. He's been marked out for the Lord. It doesn't mean he's been saved. We need to see profession of faith. We need to see evidence of faith later on. But we do mean early on, he has been set apart as holy, as different from the rest of the world. He's part of God's family. This is a marriage illustration, isn't it? You've been given a ring We've given our children the ring and you, whether you've baptized as a baby or as an adult, you've been given a, an engagement ring, a wedding ring from God that says who you are, what your name is. He has left his mark on you. That's one truth. That's one thing it signifies. The second is this. The sign of circumcision and baptism signifies our salvation. The true meaning of physical circumcision was clear. It signified heart circumcision. The cutting away of the nastiness inside of us, the sinfulness inside of us. And the circumcision of the heart involved, the same thing it always has involved, repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Circumcision is the cutting away of something. In the New Testament, what is cut away? The old man, the sinful man that is inside of us. And notice that circumcision is done on the most intimate part of the body. God didn't just cut your earlobe. He went to the most intimate, the deepest part of who we are. For many of us, our identity. What's that signify? It means repentance has to cut to the very depths of who you are. That when the Holy Spirit enters your heart, he cuts deep. Second, it also means this. It means faith. What's Abraham got? It talks about in Romans 4.11, He received the sign of circumcision as a seal. As a seal of the faith. The righteousness he had by faith. Circumcision is the sign and seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. And by faith, we are made righteous. We are made blameless before God. That's what the sign signifies. Fourth and final question, how do we receive it? How do we receive? And here I'm not going to simply be talking about the sign because it's easy to receive the sign. It's the heart thing that I want you to receive. I want you to receive baptism of the Holy Spirit. I want you to receive circumcision of the hearts. How do you receive it? you got to receive it submissively. Could, well, could a man circumcise himself? Physically, he's able to, but who would do that? It's meant to show the, pro, like, you, the position you have to be in as a man in the Old Testament to be circumcised is what? It's vulnerability. It's submissiveness. You have to have complete and absolute trust. You have to lay yourself out there and say, I can't do anything. You're going to have to do this for me. You see, submissiveness has an activeness where you lay yourself down and it has a passiveness where you can't do anything. You have to rely on God to do it for you. And that's a sign of what's going on inside of our hearts. Can you cleanse your hearts? No. You can't clean your hearts. Jesus talks about this to a Pharisee in John 3, a guy named Nicodemus. And he says, Hey, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus, with all his great learning, here's his ridiculous response. How am I to get back into my mother's womb? Jesus had to be poking his, eyebrows, his eyeballs going... It's a spiritual metaphor, moron. You can't get inside your mother's womb. It has to be done for you. And he says it has to be done by water and spirit. What's he referring to there? It has to be done by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. God has to do it. There's a wonderful story in The, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis where he talks about a 12 year old boy named Eustace who's a complete jerk. Everybody hates Eustace. He's a complete brat. He's only out for himself and he's on this great voyage and they stop at this island and there's this dragon who lives on the island and he goes and finds that dragon because he hears that the dragon lives on top of a pile of gold and jewels and he finds a pile of gold and jewels and he's so excited for himself. He's going to be better than everybody else. He's going to rule over everybody because he's got all this money and he goes to sleep on top of the pile of riches. And C.S. Lewis describes it this way it says because of all of his dragonish thoughts when he wakes up he has been turned into a dragon what's happened who he is on the inside has become visible on the outside and then he realizes well i'm a dragon i can't go back to the ship i'm he's going to be ostracized ostracized and isolated for the rest of his life and so he's trying to figure out how how do i how do i tell them i'm it's me it's eustace it's not me the dragon how do i get out of this thing and suddenly aslan the jesus figure shows up and he says you got to come with me to the well You've got to come with me to the baptism well. He says you've got to get in, but before you get in, you've got to take your clothes off. You've got to undress. And Eustace realizes he's saying you've got to take your dragon clothes off, the scales. And so he begins to sc- scrape away at his scales time after time. And he scrapes off a layer, and he thinks he can get into the well and realizes there's still another layer. And so he gets, goes out another layer, and it feels good at first, but then it begins to be painful. Three times he scrapes away the outer layer of his scales and finally, when he's about to despair, when he's completely frustrated and he's going to give up, Aslan steps up and he says this, I must undress you. And here's how he used to describe it when he goes back and tells his friends later. He says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay down flat on my back. And I let him do it. And the first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my very heart, because indeed it had you want to be submissive, the first thing you got to know is you can't clean yourself up. And some of you, this is the way you've been living your life. You've been just scraping away. It's, it's spiritual masochism. You've been trying to do it all yourself. Just clean yourself up. Scraping away your heart. Scraping away on the outside of who you are. You've got to realize you can't clean yourself up. And the second, you've got to realize that Jesus, His Spirit has got to do it for you. So what you got to do? You see, whether you have professed faith in Jesus, whether you've been baptized or you haven't, what you've got to do today and the call of this passage to do this is to lay yourself out like Eustace and say, Jesus, I cannot clean up my heart. I cannot remove the scales of my sin and my sinfulness. I need you to cut deep inside of me and baptize me with your Holy Spirit. Last point, last thought. It'll take two minutes. Last thing you've got is you've got to live your life in the light of the realities of the sign. Here's what the Puritans would say about our baptism. They'd say whether you're baptized as a baby or baptized as an adult, you have to improve your baptism. Now, do you improve on what God does? No. What, he, what they meant was this, is you have to use it. You have to appropriate. You have to apply your baptism into your life. Let's run through some scenarios. So in the midst of temptation, when we are tempted to sin, you know we ought to say to ourselves? How can I do this to the one who has placed his wedding ring on me? How can I be unfaithful to the one who has loved me like this? In the midst of temptation, when the Satan comes in and threatens to make you despair because of your guilt and your sin, you, you got to be like Luther. You know, Luther, Martin Luther, when he was in the castle at Wartburg, he was always distressed by how guilty he was over his sin, and he seemed like the devils and the demons were speaking to him of how awful he was. But what they found in the Wartburg castle on the walls, like a crazy man, he had written over and over and over again, I am baptized. Devil, get away from me. You cannot touch me. I am the Lord's. I have been set apart and I am his. When the devil brings suffering to your life and your life is hard, what does the covenant sign tell you? That the one who is promised is true. He's given you the sign to help you remember that one day you'll be brought through the suffering and brought into his inheritance. When your child who has been baptized rebels and becomes the prodigal, what do you do then? How do you use their baptism? You take God's act of putting his mark on his child and you go before God and you lay his promises before him and you plead you said God you put your mark on my child that my child is walking away from you you go after them you're the one who marked them not me you're the one who put the sign on them not me you are more of a father to this child than I will ever be you pursue them you know the whole, You got to read the Old Testament prophets it is unbelievable the grace you know why? What do we see is that old Israel, it rejects God time after time after time again. God sends them into slavery. There's consequences for the sin, but what does he do? Then there's these beautiful poems about how I'm going to come, and I'm going to love you and restore you. It's all about his steadfast love. That's you've got to plead for your child. God, you pursue them. You put your mark upon them. Just like you did Israel, you go after them. And finally, what do you do when you need joy? What do you do when your marriage is tough? Things are hard. You look to the sign and you remember the covenant day. You remember the wedding. And you remember the dancing. You remember standing in front of everybody and making promises. And, you, and so that's the same thing you've got to do here. You look at the wedding ring of your baptism. Every time you see somebody baptized, you should remember this. You should remember the words of your covenant God who says this over you in Zephaniah 3.17. I rejoice over you with gladness. This is your groom speaking to you, bride. I rejoice over you, gladness. I quiet you with my love and I dance over you with loud singing. That's the gospel. Let's go to the table and pray. Many who are serving, come up. Oh gracious God, we thank you. that you not only signed your covenant in blood, that you made promises to us, but then you gave us a remembrance, a one-time remembrance that we can look back to always in our baptism. But then you also, when you brought us in in baptism, you called us sons and daughters. You then ushered us to a banqueting table. And so we thank you for Jesus. And so, Lord, we set aside these elements, this bread and this cup that represents your body and your blood We come to celebrate and feed upon you and your grace and your mercy. I pray that you unite us around this table even when we're different. That our creed would be Christ and him alone, as we sang earlier, that it would be Christ and Christ alone. So we come to profess and proclaim that this morning at your table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, the one thing I didn't address is this. You know, you know why there's a change in the sign? You know, there's two sacraments in the Old Testament, right? Circumcision and Passover. They're both really messy. They both require blood being shed. At Passover, a lamb had to be shed, and they had to spread the blood over the door to set them aside. And in Passover, blood had to be shed on the man it was messy. It was foul. Why? And why the change now? You know what we have now? Man, we have water baptism. You know how great that is? That's cleansing. You get a shower. Imagine how, if you're in 1st century Jew, how amazing that is. You're people who bathe once a month. A bath is an amazing day. And suddenly you're being given a bath as a beautiful sign of your cleansing and your comfort. And what about the, we go from the Passover to the Lord's Supper? What do we have? We have bread and wine. They're, they're party elements. We've gone from the shedding of blood to a party, a celebration, to comfort through the cleansing of baptism. Why why the change? Why not just keep it the old way? Well, the reason why there's was shedding of blood in the Old Testament is because of what Hebrews said, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And it it was before the perfect son, the one who had the absolute perfect mark of his father upon him already. It was before he came and shed his blood, You see, the reason why the signs change after Jesus is here is because no more blood has to be shed. We are no longer looking forward to the day in which the perfect blood has to be shed. We're looking back in celebration that it was shed. That's the sweet truth of the gospel. There is no more wrath left for you. Come to the table of mercy. Listen, if you've never submitted your life to Jesus, though, if you've never said, if you're still trying to clean your life up by your own good works, by your own efforts, If you've never repented of your sin and laid yourself out bare before the Lord and said, I need you to cut me to the very depths of who I am. If you haven't done that yet, then then we would ask that you stay away. Don't take the bread and the cup. This is for those who say, I have nothing else. I bring nothing in my hands. I have no righteousness of my own. I need Christ and Christ alone. I need his his spirit to work. If you can't say that, then it would be a lie to take this. But I would encourage you, as you see the bread and the cup pass, what kind of God, the creator God that would put his mark and say, you are mine. Whatever God are you serving, do they do that? Before you've done anything righteous, do they say, you are mine. You're holy and set apart. But you, if you're struggling, if you're tempted as Luther was, this is the table for you. So come and remember your baptism, the fact that you've been ushered to the banqueting table, that you're treated like sons and daughters, as servants of the king. And he's your call to come take and eat.